I'm Eileen Dung, and this is the God Slot. Hello and welcome. Instead of our usual signature tune, we begin our first God slot of this, our third season, with a piece of music that opens the Saturday morning Sabbath service in the Orthodox Jewish Synagogue. And in association with RTE's Big Music Week, music is the theme of our programme. We're joined in studio by an all-female panel. We have the musical director of the Palestrina Choir, Blonet Murphy, Jacqueline Mullen, who directs the Parish Choir of St. Patrick's Church in Great. Stones, Florence Mutessa Sira of Christian Aid Ireland, and Dr. Melanie Brown, an expert in Jewish music. Melanie, as Judaism is the oldest of the monotheistic faiths, we might start with you. Tell us about the piece we've just been listening to. Well, the piece opens the Sabbath morning service on a Saturday morning. What we heard was uh, Dr. Howard Gross, and uh, Dr. Gross is a dentist. He's also very, very highly skilled in the art of leading the Sabbath service. You don't actually need a cantor or a rabbi to lead a service. Any competent male over the age of 13 in the Orthodox Jewish tradition can lead. And this is a skill that's usually acquired from parents and teachers over the years. So whereas we do have a full-time cantor in the synagogue, um, Reverend Alan Schumann, it means that any, any other time that there are many men in the congregation also skilled in this way. It has its basis in Lithuanian folk music because the modern Jewish community actually has its roots in Lithuanian immigrants who came here at the turn of the last century. And although the community has been rooted here really since the 1660s, it's fair to say that many Jewish people living in in Ireland now actually have Lithuanian forebears. So you have this very distinct Lithuanian influence both from the point of view of Lithuanian church music, Lithuanian folk music, and of course the indigenous Lithuanian Orthodox Jewish music that was performed at the time and which travelled with the immigrants because music is an artefact that requires no space. It has no weight. It comes with the people. Prayer in the Orthodox tradition only takes place through the medium of music because music is said to have spiritual powers over and above the powers of language, by which we can communicate with the Almighty more directly and more sincerely. And it's always a man who leads the singing? In the Orthodox tradition, that's the case. In the Reformed tradition, there's a far different philosophical attitude towards the position of women. Is it as important in the non-Orthodox tradition, the music? My experience in Dublin is that there is possibly less music in the Reformed tradition than in the Orthodox tradition. For instance, the Sabbath morning service, the opening of which we've heard, that can last over three hours. The entire service is through sung, partly by the person who's leading it and partly there's a large degree of congregational response as you go through the service, which means that people in the congregation are usually very active in, in singing and in participating. Well, as we, we heard, that was the chakras or the morning prayer. Let's just hear another little bit of it before we move on. <laughs> El melech godel batish bochas, kel ha doas adan aniploas, 
Dr. Howard Gross performing the Chakras. Well, after Judaism, Christianity came along and without going into too much historical detail, I think it's fair to say Catholicism, the oldest uh, tradition in Christianity. Blonard Murphy, you're musical director of one of Ireland's national treasures, the Palestrina Choir, based at Dublin's Pro Cathedral. How did the relationship between music and Catholic worship begin? Well, I think it largely came through um, from the Jewish chants, came Gregorian chants, which was a mixture of lots of different um, elements coming together, brought together by Pope Gregory, and hence the name Gregorian chants. And that was really the central um, form of Catholic worship for many, many centuries. Eventually, obviously, Polyphony by Palestrina, Victoria and Lassus and people like that came, uh, came largely based on chants. And really, right through up into the present day, many, many compositions, church, church works for the, the church, not only Catholic church, but the Christian church, are based on Gregorian chants. Um, there was a sort of a change after the Vatican Council, the Second Vatican Council, it was interpreted that that meant chant should have a lesser role. And I think people are now looking at that, realising that wasn't really intended. And I'm glad to say, especially in Dublin and Ireland, there's a quite a, an awful lot of people who have a great feeling for chants. Anybody so over 50, remember, they were taught it very thoroughly in school. They have a real natural feel for it, which is an extremely valuable um, heritage. The Catholic Church music has had a rocky ground since the Vatican Council. People didn't quite know how you, what music did you use that was suddenly in English, what settings it said it was to be involved, the congregation, how did you bridge that? And I don't think it's fully been played out how that should happen. Although there has been, there are some very, very fine composers writing now stuff that's singable for a congregation, but is also a very high standard of music, and I hope that can be really built on. Now, you're, you're stressing the importance of having children involved from an early age. Well, I passionately believe if you get um, small children at primary school age involved in a church, church music, in choirs, they have that experience of singing for liturgy. They really experience that on a weekly basis. They build memories and they build a sense of that being important in their life. So to me, the, the primary age is crucial. And I'm thrilled at the Pro Cathedral. We now have the uh, girls' choir there as well so that we have young boys and young girls getting that exposure. So who knows where some of the members of the Palestrina Choir might end up blonded. They sing True. in Dublin's Pro Cathedral every Sunday and you've chosen a piece for us today. What's that? I've chosen the Egos Panis Vivus by Palestrina, one of the sort of key Palestrina pieces.
Ego Sum Panis Vivus by Palestrina, sung by the Palestrina Choir under the direction of Blonad Murphy from a CD that was released last year to coincide with the Eucharistic Congress. Let's turn now to Jacqueline Mullen, who holds an MA in music and looks after choral practices in Greystones. Jacqueline, the Protestant Reformation, which began in 1517, was to change everything when a lot of what were seen as extravagant Roman practices were stripped back and simplified. How did that affect the music? Certainly Martin Luther, who seems to have spearheaded new thought in terms of going back to scriptural practices, he was very keen on music. He actually went into the schools and taught the children hymns so that they could bring them into the church to teach the adults, which seems a very sensible way of doing things. Today, we have, of course, a tradition of hymnody and the Church of Ireland and alongside the Anglican Communion in general is well known for its hymnody. However, Anglican chant developed, which is a four part chant and the words are simply fitted in by means of marks on the text. Anglican chant is still sung in many parish churches, particularly canticles. Now, the canticles are scriptural songs, most of which are taken from scripture. There are a couple of exceptions. And we encourage people to try to sing these as much as possible as congregations. Now, many churches will have choirs and these choirs lead these very competently. But even where there are only a few people gathered, there are quite simple liturgical items that can be included and people can sing them together. We are there to encourage the gathered community to join as one voice and to praise God together, to pray together, to lament together, to uh, be penitent together. Well, I think it's quite striking if, if we take funerals, for example, if mm. you go to a Church of Ireland funeral compared yes. to a Roman Catholic funeral, mm-hmm. the participation of the congregation. Oh, yeah, it yeah. always strikes me. Whenever Blonde. I go, it's extraordinary. Catholics just don't sing. They had a history of hiding ma- um, the mass, the mass rocks and things, and it almost seems Protestant to them to sing hymns. And when you go to a Church of Ireland's funeral, it's really uplifting. Everybody's joining in, and it's it's very, very noteworthy. What have you chosen for us today, uh, Jacqueline? I have chosen a metrical version of the canticle Benedictus, which is the Song of Zachariah. Now, the text has been taken by Timothy Dudley Smith, who is a great wordsmith, and put into metrical form 
The tune is by Theo Saunders, who is the organist in the Church of Ireland Cathedral of St. Patrick's in Armagh. And just as we listen to this, I would like to assure Theo of our thoughts and prayers. He hasn't been at all well recently. And we'd just like to tell him that we're all thinking of him and praying for him. That was the choir from St. Patrick's Church in Greystones with the Benedictus, the song of Zachariah. Well, we may bemoan the fact that Catholics don't sing, but one area of music that is growing rapidly in this country and elsewhere is gospel music. Florence Mutesasira from Christian Aid. This is one of your favourite topics and you're going to tell us about it. You've been involved since you were about 10. Yes, um, I've been involved in gospel music and in worship music in the church since I was a kid in Sunday school. It's quite a key element in that you clapped your hands, you danced, you expected to have instruments, you expected to have keyboards and drums, which is very different from a lot of the churches you find in Ireland. But recently, gospel music in the last 10 years or so has grown in Ireland with the growth of gospel choirs. They're not Catholic, they're not Anglican, they're not Jewish, they're not Pentecostal, they're just Christian. So it's one of those beautiful elements that just brings anybody who is of the Christian faith on and into this one good news gospel music. It's also entertaining as well and fun music. Isn't that the thing, if I can bring the, the rest of you in here, that it is fun and it is entertaining and is there be something to be learned here by the other churches and faiths? Yes, I think so. I think anything that that makes people enjoy what they're doing, feel that sense of communi- community worship and really uh, upbeat, it's absolutely wonderful. And it really, that, that adds a complete dimension that can, a lot of people will be very drawn to that kind of um, worship. Melanie, yours is chanting and it's, it's music, obviously speech, but not so many instruments. Well, in the Orthodox Jewish tradition, there are no instruments in the synagogue particularly on the Sabbath for, for various religious reasons. But it would be incorrect to assume that the entire service is based on music because there's an enormous variation within that three, three and a half hours. You'll have music of the style that we just heard. You'll have sections that are not dissimilar to hymnody. You'll have the very, very ancient cantillation. And then towards the end of the service, there'll be a lot more congregational involvement and a lot of those pieces will be much more upbeat and then there's also one particular long section that tends to be led by children in which the children take over the service and the adults respond to the children that happens every week as Blonde said it's another way of bringing the children in and experiencing the religious aspects of the service and why no instruments that has to do with um, various teachings partly to do with the proscription on work on the sabbath day and work would involve the use of musical instruments and there are other teachings one of the teachings is that we are 
still mourning the, the loss of the temple and that's why we don't have instrumental music. So you talk about mourning. On the other side, maybe Florence, gospel music started with black American slaves. Yes. And it has it, turned into something so joyous. It started in the 18th century when you had the transatlantic slave trade and the slaves were brought into America, which is basically the source of gospel music. Their masters made them go to Christian churches, Baptist churches and Methodist churches. And what the slaves did in turn was they got together what were hymns and then what they knew as their own worship songs, you know, the call and response, and they put together their own style of worship. Sometimes it was just work songs to get them to encourage themselves. It was messages. There was a lot of songs of freedom and social messages coming across. But it has grown a huge deal from that, and it has spread all around the world, though America is still the hub of gospel music. In Ireland, just to come back to the churches bringing in the gospel music, there are about 90 gospel choirs. If you go to Gardiner Street, Gospel Choir, Dublin Gospel Choir, Discovery Gospel Choir, St. Andrew's on Westland Row, they bring they have a glow gospel choir that sings in their second chance mass on Saturday. So they have a lot of gospel coming into the Catholic and the Anglican churches. So what you are mentioning is already being incorporated, especially to bring the younger people back to church as a place they can engage and enjoy, but at the same time get that spiritual message and uplifting encouragement. Jacqueline Blona, does the music need to evolve or will the tried and trusted, tested liturgical music always have a place in the church? I think it will always have a place, Jacqueline. yes. Um, in fact, we are encouraging it, very much so at the moment. Uh, the Church of Ireland are bringing out a supplement to the church hymnal and there will be several more new liturgical items in that to help churches to be able to sing liturgy simply and easily and congregationally. This is not about choirs. The choirs are there to encourage and to sing anthems and to minister to the people, but it's about the people singing together. In fact, we're looking at quite an eclectic mix. We, we try to include some gospel. We try to include some world music. We try to include music from you know earlier years, earlier centuries, Latin hymns. So, you know... There's no sort of wall dividing what kind of music we're going to use. I suppose we're known for our hymns and I think the hymns will remain. I had the good fortune to be in Linz a few years ago and where Bruckner was born and went to a high mass in the cathedral mm. where the organ that he played was being played and there was choir and there was trumpets and, the, and there was a great sense there of, you think back several centuries, this music was being played and it's still being played. Well, I think the crucial thing is that there has to be good quality in what's being done yes. that nobody wants to go to a church and drone out some very badly played or badly sung hymns or whatever it is so I think it's it's very good to take elements from all these things and see what makes people interested in them and certainly the feeling of engagement uplifting sensation and the fact people are being brought along in a tide where they feel this is doing something for me this is doing something for my spiritual um, development for, for, and, and I think that's really important there's been too long too many churches with very quite frankly sometimes in the summer holidays I go to other churches and I'm really wondering why people are going sometimes the music is so bad and I'm thinking how could people find this interesting or feel in any way that they'd like to join in because there's just nothing gripping um, me and I'm, I'm sure I'm not you know dissimilar to a lot of people 
And would you think it's a prerequisite? Some churches have no music at all. Well, I think I think some people, some pe- I know people who literally would much rather go to a mass with with no music. My grandmother was one of those. She couldn't bear it when there was any music in the church. Didn't matter if I was playing; she'd just much rather I wasn't. So I think uh, there is that. Of course, you can have a very spiritual mass without music, but I think most people would find that uh, music is a great enabler for them to develop a prayerful communication with with God. Melanie, is there music at all of your services? Every single service is performed through the medium of music and not just in the synagogue but the funeral service takes place to music private prayer in the home takes place to music the sabbath is ushered in at the dinner table in the family home to music Um, it's inconceivable to have prayer without music in the orthodox jewish tradition jacqueline no not all services have music Um, early morning holy communion services in church of ireland churches would not normally have music they would be said um, sometimes where there's a choice, some churches have evening prayer with no music. However, there is no reason for them not to have music. They've all got voices and sometimes you will encounter very good singers in these situations and all they need is a little encouragement. There is no reason why the Sanctus shouldn't be sung. We join our voices with the song of angels singing holy, holy, holy. That's a high point in the Eucharist. There's no reason if somebody just has the nerve to actually start singing The rest will join in out of sympathy, at least. Um, So, you know, we should be developing this. We should be opening our our minds, so to speak, to the possibilities. We've got voices. We can use them, whether there's an instrument there or not. And Florence, can you conceive of a service without music? I cannot. Absolutely not. I would agree with Blanet. It's part of the worship, even biblically. Singing is part of expressing our heart to God, whether it's pain, whether it's prayer, whether it's excitement, whether it's testimony. And I come from a non-denominational Christian background. So while in most of the denominations, you'll find the choirs are outside of the church. Where I'm from, the choir leads the worship. And you do songs that people can pick up and they engage with. And if they're hurting, they cry. If they're happy, you know, they dance, they clap. They express themselves. But also talking about whether music needs to evolve, just sitting here and listening to the very different pieces of music that have been played, they have been beautiful in their own styles. And they've touched me in their own styles. Every one of them has moved me. And I would like that variety, I think, should remain because each of it brings a different aspect to people's lives. And it would be a pity to see it change and people trying to adjust to what is acceptable, but rather do excellence in what they know, what they do best. Just make it as good as you can. That's a lovely way to end, Florence. We're going to hear from the Dublin Gospel Choir in a moment, but first of all, can I thank you all for joining us today, Blonet, Jacqueline, Florence and Melanie. This is the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi, so next Friday we'll be looking at the career to date of the first Pope to be called after that most popular of saints. On Sunday at half past ten on RTE1, Gay Byrne returns with the meaning of life and his guest this week is Colm Wilkinson. And on Beyond Belief on Monday night, Mick Pilo will explore Islam. Our phone number on the God slot is 012082039. Our email address is godslot at rte.ie and you can write to us at the God slot at RTE Radio 1 Dublin 4. As promised, we leave you with the Dublin Gospel Choir singing Here I Am. Lord. So until next week at the same time, Gugudi Jishif. <laughs>